So this morning, I pray to be faithful to God's word when I talk about Acts 6, 1 through 8, 3. And uh, it deals with Stephen, Stephen the martyr. And uh, I'm sure you know the words to this song. Good King Wenceslas, that was, um, my dad had this amazing record collection when I was a kid. And I ranged everything from classical to ragtime to Caribbean. And he had a, a quite an amazing collection of Christmas records. And that was a song that always came up. Um, Good King Wenceslas went out on the Feast of Stephen. And uh, the song really had no meaning to me. I didn't sing it along with Frosty the Snowman and Santa Claus is Coming to Town because it had no meaning. Yeah. And... Uh, the only thing I can think of why it was even included among Christmas, Christmas songs, it has nothing to do with Christmas, but it has something to do with the St. Stephen's Day feast. And St. Stephen's Day just happens to fall in Western Christianity on December 26th and Eastern Christianity on December 27th. And uh, there are other subsets of Christianity that choose different days but they're all around in the same range and uh Wenceslas himself was not even a king he was a duke in Bohemia and somewhere along the way the church the catholic church declared him not only uh, a king but a martyr and they venerated him as a saint uh, so now you know more about Wenceslas than we do about Stephen. The Bible doesn't say very much about Stephen at all. Um, and I'll tell you what we do know. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, which meant that even though he was Jewish, he was a Greek-speaking Jew, totally immersed in Greek, cult uh, Greek culture. The name Stephen itself is actually Stephanos, which is a Greek name meaning wreath or crown, and by extension, reward, honor, renown, fame. And it was often used as a title instead of a name. Uh, we believe he was born in 5 AD. And when he died in 36, 33 to 36 AD, he was 28 to 32 years old. That's what we think we know about him. He was a deacon, which had somewhat of a different meaning back then than it than today. It doesn't mean that he was uh, one of the higher up leaders in any organized religion. It meant that he, uh, well, in a sense, were all deacons. He was one who was a teacher in the church. And, and the problem came up, well, before we get to that, he was often pictured with a crown when they made art later on, uh, signifying martyrdom. He was shown with three stones, with a palm frond, and often with a miniature church in his hand. These are things signifying martyrdom and other things. The Crusaders, many years later, called the North Gate of Jerusalem, Jerusalem St. Stephen's Gate. But now the Eastern Gate is called St. Stephen's Gate. Uh, Stephen's grave was found in 415 AD 
when a priest purportedly had a dream telling him where to find Stephen's body. And the bulk of his relics now lie in the Basilica of San Lorenzo, Fiori, Lemura. I don't speak Italian or any other language but English, unfortunately. Uh, and they're alongside the relics of St. Lawrence. And Golden Legend has it that when they brought in Stephen's remains, Lawrence's uh, miraculously moved aside to make room for Stephen, if you believe that. Uh, so having both the relics of Stephen and Lawrence in one place was a huge thing. It's like, you know, if you're into idolatry, it's like having the Babe Ruth and Honus Wagner rookie cards in mint condition autographed. That's, that's how huge it was. But it's meaningless. It's idolatry. So that's what we know from things other than the Bible. What the Bible tells us can all be found in Acts 6 through the beginning of 8. And I'm not going to read all of it. I'll read selected parts because it's rather long and I could stay here a long time. Acts 6, 1 starts. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because of their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And what's interesting is this is the beginning church and, you know, it's the foundation of everything we have now. And they had divisions in the church, which was amazing but we're all human. I I remember I grew up in Brooklyn and I went to a church and my mother would take me. And one day I was very young, probably 10 years old. And we came to a part in the service where you were encouraged to turn to your neighbor and shake hands as a sign of peace. And there was a man sitting a little off to the side and he wouldn't shake my hand. And his explanation was I'm in the KKK. And I didn't understand what that meant until later. My mother was very upset and she told me. And my reaction was, in church? Really? I didn't even know such an organization existed, much less somebody like that was in church. And then there are uh, not only divisions within the church. You know, I, I went to churches where people didn't speak to each other. Not like here where we all know each other. And... uh There's another church whose name I won't mention, uh, but we all know of their antics. They they practice hatred. Uh, They protest at the funerals of fallen soldiers. They do all kinds of hateful things, use rhetoric that just is so insightful and claim themselves to be Christians. But any church that doesn't follow what the Bible has to say or refuses to follow it is not a church. It's a cult. And there are many cults out there. There are many organizations that call themselves churches. I'm I'm not trying to put down other churches. I'm just pointing out divisions existed then. They exist now. Not a whole lot's changed. So moving on to verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples 
together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit, spirit with a capital S, and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Uh, It was important that they have men of good reputation, first of all, if if you're going to be distributing food, you want to have someone you know is going to be fair. If you want somebody, if you have somebody in a position of responsibility, you want to make sure that they're fair. Uh, and being full of spirit and wisdom, well, they have to be the real deal. Moving to chapter, uh, act, sorry, verse six. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, two things are Nicholas is mentioned as being a proselyte. And what that meant was he wasn't born Jewish. He converted to Judaism and then became a Christian. So uh, you can imagine what the reaction of, of the people he had been among who didn't convert. Hey, I thought you were Jewish, and now you're following this guy? Um, The other thing, so that suggests that Stephen, since he wasn't mentioned as being a proselyte, was born Jewish. The other thing worthy and noteworthy in that verse is priests coming to faith. These are Jewish priests coming to faith, not Christian priests. That's a big thing. It's one thing for the lay people and the masses to convert, but for a priest to convert, that was pretty huge. And it, you know, God doesn't need anything to be legitimate. He is. But in the eyes of the people, that gave Christianity some legitimacy that it didn't have before. So it was a big thing that priests came to faith. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was chosen to hand out meal kits. He wasn't chosen to do anything. And here he is performing great signs and wonders. It tells us the power that God has to use anybody. That's amazing. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the spirit as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs 
Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So as usual, as they did with Jesus, as they did with everybody else who God brought as prophets, they brought false witnesses and made accusations. Uh, And I don't know about you, but if I looked at somebody and saw they had the face of the angel, it would make me stop and pause, but it didn't make these particular people even blink an eye. It meant nothing. To see someone with the face of an angel, that would tell you that God's involved. It would tell me that God's involved. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they proceeded. And um, hardness of the hearts reminds me of Pharaoh. You know, I used to, I used to think, hey, it was so unfair that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Until someone pointed out to me, well, Pharaoh did it first. He hardened his own heart multiple times. And then finally God said, you know what? No problem. I've got this. And that's how it is. If we keep hardening our hearts, it'll get to the point where we no longer have any interest in doing godly things and being godly. And then God will say it. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And that's in Acts 7. To this he replied, brothers and sisters, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot in. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. Uh, Abraham's faith was so strong that even though he never set foot in that promised land, he had faith that God was going to keep his promises because he always does. I don't, I don't know of a single promise that God made in the Bible that hasn't come true or isn't coming true. And the the most important promise that God made was that we would have a savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. God is always working in our lives, whether or not we see it. Then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision and circumcision and, sorry, Abraham became the father of Isaac. I'm going to skip a little bit here. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph, without going through the whole story, was rejected by his brothers. And God made him second in command in Egypt. And this is also a recurring theme within the Bible. 
those who are rejected are held way up high. And of course, the ultimate is Jesus himself. Skipping down to 18. Then a new king to whom Joseph, Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. God's people would leave their children out to die. I, I can't even picture that. None of us would do it. We'd give our lives for our kids. And here they were leaving their children out to die. That had to be some powerful motivation. I mean, what did Pharaoh say? You know, by contrast, God sent Jesus to die for us. He sent his son to die for us. The Jews in Egypt, they let their right to save their own selves. Later in the Bible, they would sacrifice their children to false gods. They would let them burn their own children. So all these things being pointed out by Stephen are the wickedness of the Jews who rejected God's word, who rejected what he told them to do, who disobeyed. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own. When Moses was 40 years old, I'm skipping ahead, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. What do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Going down to verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered, deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Going down to verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
So here again, Moses isn't present. They take their eyes off of him for a moment. And then they're no longer committed. Again, this exposes the pattern of the Jews rejecting the prophets, disobeying God, trusting in their own judgment, just like we sometimes do, just like I sometimes do. You know, there are times I say, oh, God, I'm going to follow what you say. You know, give me guidance with my finances or something else. And then five minutes later, I'm making my own plan, forgetting what I had just said. Verse 51, finally, after Stephen pleads his entire case, he says to the people in judgment of him, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. This was pretty harsh criticism. Uh, nobody likes to be criticized. Nobody likes to hear where we're at fault, especially when it's true. But it was more than criticism. It was actually a verdict. They were judging him, and he pronounced a verdict on them. Um, you know, accurate, honest criticism is great. I had a teacher once. I had written a paper, and I knew it was an A paper. When I handed it in, the next day I got it back, there was a big red C on it. And the teacher said, Rich, this was lazy. I know you're capable of better than this and gave it back to me. Another time I had written what I thought was a great piece of work because I like to write and I had some friends look at it. And the ones who really knew about writing gave me really harsh criticism and I didn't want to hear it until one, two, three, four, five people said the same thing. And finally I had to say, well, maybe they're right. And when I took their advice, my writing was so much better. No, we don't like criticism, but honest criticism is the best thing for you. You know, these people were friends. They wanted the best for me. So they gave me that honest criticism. Moving on to Acts 8, just the first three verses. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. You know, after being involved in Stephen's death, uh, and, and, you know, you can imagine the Sanhedrin and the council, and 
it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that maybe Saul was there during that too. Even though he's not mentioned, it's not hard to imagine that he possibly was there. And, and after Stephen's death, it was like something ignited in him. It's like he had this bloodthirst that came to life. And it reminded me of 1938, Kristallnacht in Germany. It was after that, it was open season on the Jews. With Saul, it was open season on Christians for a while. And, uh, you know, the takeaway from all of this, we live in a place and a time when we're, we're relatively safe. There are other parts of the world, uh, our sister over in India even, there are other parts of the world where we don't have the safety and the freedom to speak openly about our belief in the Lord. We don't have the ability uh, or, or they don't have the ability to speak freely like we do. And, and our rights are being challenged here and there. But still, it's nothing like what's going on in other places. So most of us won't be called to die for the Lord unless something drastic changes or we move to one of those places. But right now, we have freedom to worship. So if we're not going to die for the Lord necessarily, what can we get from this? And uh, the thing that I come up with, hopefully I'm correct, is we have to die to ourselves. Um, Now, this term is not specifically used in the Bible. There's nothing, there's no passage that says, thou shalt die to yourself. There are some passages, though. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. Luke 9.23, and he being Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 6.11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's dying to self. You know, uh, two weeks ago, we sang, I surrender all. And I had an aha moment. Yes. I was trying to think, what is dying to self? I surrender all. I surrender all. Lord, my finances are yours. Lord, my family is yours. My time's yours. Most of all, my heart's yours. 
you know, Zach Williams has a song, uh, a little less like me in it. And the chorus is a little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness, goodness, love, and faith, a little more like patience, a little more like peace, a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. That's dying to self. And, and it's not an easy thing to die to self. It really isn't. Um, some of us here are terrified of a hypodermic needle. It's just a little, little poke for a few seconds, a little soreness for a couple of days, but that's it. Imagine being crucified in comparison. Imagine facing crucifixion. You know, Jesus knew what was ahead. He knew how horrible, it's horrible for us to imagine it for somebody else. Imagine Jesus giving up everything that he had in heaven to come here to do that for us. Wow. Wow. And he didn't, he didn't go reluctantly. He went boldly into Jerusalem. Yeah, he asked if possibly the cup could be taken away, but he still said, Father, your will, not mine. You know, and, and he had to have known what crucifixion was. It was a public thing. It wasn't done in a small room with a curtain nobody could see. It was done publicly, and it was meant to shame the person being crucified. It was meant to torture them and shame them and make them a public example. And our Lord went to the cross us. He faced that for us. Now, um, to me, life, dealing with life and trying to die to self is like walking through a grocery store. You know, there's all the yummy, tempting, delicious, and fun things all around us and behind us. All the things that are bad for you, but are tempting. And straight ahead on this narrow path is the things that are good and nutritious. And all these other things are tempting and tasty, but you know they're unhealthy. And the temptation is always there. But once you develop a taste for that good, nutritious stuff that's ahead of you, it starts to become what you crave. And we'll never, we'll never be free from temptation. You know, um, we're made of flesh and blood. You know, that doesn't mean you'll never sneak and grab that chocolate-infused bacon beer once in a while. But it does mean we won't enjoy it so much when we do. It won't feel as good anymore. Newton's third law says for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And our actions have a cost. And sometimes there's a ripple effect. It sets off other things in motion as part of that cost. The flip side is if we really want something, there's a cost for that too. If we want to be Christians, there's a cost that is dying to ourselves. You know, dying to ourselves. That's the cross 
That's the cost for being a brother or sister of the one true king. But um, I would be a liar and a hypocrite if I were to tell you that that's me all the time. You know, um, a funny thing, I was reading Exodus and I came to Exodus 23, 19, talking about goats, it says, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And I thought, wow, now there's a sin I haven't committed. But am I always so good at other things? Am I always so good at other things that God asks of me? How about being slow to anger? My wife will tell you about that one. How about being generous? How about loving others as I love myself? How about reading the Bible every time that I should so I can be totally immersed in the word of God? You know, there are many things that are part of being a Christian. And they're hard. And God understands. And that's why he gave us the Lord. So that we could be forgiven when we don't. We want to repent for sure. But God knows how hard it is, and he gave us a savior. So finally, in dying to self, we need each other. We need each other's support, but we also need to support each other. Sometimes that means telling that hard truth. That sometimes that means telling Richard, you got to see on this paper. And sometimes it means accepting that hard truth. The enemy wants us to indulge ourselves so that we can feel guilty afterward and so we can despair and so we can give up hope. He wants all that for us because he thinks it'll take away from our Lord's kingdom, but he forgives us. He loves us. And if we're willing to get back on that path, he's right there with us. Jesus wants to support and encourage us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to gather another week here as a family. We pray for the needs of our members here and and their families, and especially today, Rocco and Angel and Gloria's families, but we pray for all of our needs. Father, have mercy on the people of Ukraine and, and Russia. They're suffering too. Bring peace and healing to those nations. Have mercy on all the people of the world impacted severely by war and shortages and disease and all the things that have come to be reality in the world in the past few years. Give us the strength to go through this coming week and through all weeks that we may be worthy to stand as brothers and sisters in the kingdom to come. Amen.